Hey. All right. Hey, we're going to continue in the, oh, thank you, Mrs. We're going to continue in the book of Daniel today. If you want to get out your Bibles, pen, pencil, journal, we'll be making some notes as we travel through this book. Last night, we ended with a question, and the question was simple. The question posed was this idea. What if, instead of all the ways that you choose to identify yourself, that we, who right now are only, we're in junior high, but even the, the oldest will ever live. No one's ever lived past certain years in our culture. And, you know, we're just a little blip on the radar, okay? So however long the universe has been here, you just have this microscopic moment where you are here on planet Earth in the thing that we call life. Now, your life might seem long because it's all you've ever known, but in the grand scheme of eternity, in the grand scheme of the world, in the grand scheme of the interstellar planets, your life is this blip on a cosmic radar. So all the ways that we choose to define ourselves are irrelevant. God is the creator of all things. It says that he knows every hair on your head. He knit you together in your mother's womb. So when it comes down to it, there are two kingdoms in our world. The kingdom of Babylon, which has one objective, that you would believe that you are the king to get you to believe that what you think is most important and the way that you live your life is completely and totally up to you and any bigger questions you have, don't worry about them because the things of Babylon are so fun, right? You do what you want to do in Babylon. And then there's this other kingdom, the kingdom of God. There's a visible kingdom that we live in. There's, it's America, it's postmodernism, which means our generation believes, your generation believes, which we talked about last night, that we can make our own identity. Don't worry about what God thinks about you. You get to define yourself. And we looked at how that's working for us. Do you know how much pressure there is in our culture when the, when the whole world says, I want you to be unique. I want you to be so, so unique that there's never been another you before. And I want you to live out that uniqueness. I want you to choose your own identity. I want you to follow that identity. I want you to give yourself value, give yourself worth, give yourself meaning. Do you know how much weight that puts on a person to come up with my own value? And what's the problem with that? If I give myself identity, if I say, you know what, the reason that I'm worth anything is because I'm athletic. The reason that I'm worth anything is because people like me, right? As a pastor, sometimes we can think this, the reason that I'm worth anything is because I work at a church. Or look, look how many people uh, have watched this video that I put on the internet. We, no one's immune to it. From your leaders to the youngest student in this room, you all live on an assumption that you've got value because. And you might not even know that about yourself, but you have to. The only way that your brain will make sense of your reality is you think that you have added value to this world somehow. And you also use that same value measure to look at other people in your life. The reason that we can look at other people and look down on them is because we've decided, maybe some of you think, I am worth something because I'm popular. And everyone likes me. And look how many followers I have on social media. And look how many people, when I walk into the, the, the cafeteria at school, look how many people move their seats to sit with me. And if you want to have worth, you'll be someone like me, who always, when they walk in a room, people move their seats to sit with them. And you've got a value system. And do you want to know who are the losers in your world? Those who don't command a crowd. And your whole value is built on that. There's a problem with that, friend. And I love you enough to tell you this. The problem with that is, there are people, even in this room, who will blow you out of the water in how much more popular they are than you. 
So what do you do then if you build your whole identity on why you're important, on how many people like you and follow you and click on uh, follow on social media on your profile and how many people know your name? What do you think your soul is going to do when you run up against someone who has 50 times more followers than you? What are, what's your soul going to do when you recognize that if you don't keep up the identity, if you don't keep making people laugh, maybe you're, a, you're in here and you're like the, the class clown and you're the one who will do anything that normal, sensible people won't do. And, and here's why that's kind of funny is because you probably know who I'm talking about and it might be you. You're the one who's willing to do the dumb stuff that smart people don't do. And the reason you do that is not because you think it's a good idea, it's because you are insatiably desiring people to look at you and think that you're worth something. It's not because you're a big daredevil. It's not because you don't really care what people think about you. That's false. Every one of you in here cares deeply what the people around you think about you. Do you want to know how you can spot someone who cares the most about what people think about them? They're the people who say the phrase, I don't care what people think about me. You have found the people who care the most. We have to. We were built that way. But the problem is, we were built to derive and to get our identity from God. You see, everyone that you've ever met has an opinion about you. Everyone you've ever met, think about it as a scorecard. Everyone that you've ever met has given you a score. But the score is not even equal because for some people, they're going to judge you based on how cute you are. They're going to go, hmm, whatever number that is. Some people are going to judge you on their value system. They don't care how cute you are because in their world, they're the class clown. So they're going to judge you on how funny you are. Other people who think the most important thing is athleticism are going to judge you on how athletic you are. What's the problem with that? If you're not perfectly beautiful, athletic, sociable, and popular, there will be people in your life who think you're an idiot, who think you're a loser, who you don't measure up. And this is why our culture is so desperately desiring affection and belonging. Do you want to know why? Because we've handed the scorecards of our value to other people around us who, if we looked inside their soul, they don't know who they are either. Whoever you think in your youth group or whoever came on your trip with you, that you think, oh man, they're so confident. They don't struggle with this. They're not worried about belonging. They're not worried about being accepted. Everyone likes them. Let me tell you from firsthand experience, I was the popular kid. Every time my high school, which is a high school of 4,000 people, had a popularity contest, homecoming king, prom king, Mr. Liberty, I won all of them. Do you want to know what? I was probably the most insecure person at my school because do you know how long a plastic crown satisfies your desire to be wanted? It doesn't work. And then I got to college, and guess what? I won it again. I was homecoming king of my college. And guess what? I finally felt accepted. Not, it just, it's like the hole just kept getting deeper. It's like the chasm kept spreading. It's like, it was like this cancer of needing to be liked. This is why you recognize in the most popular people on planet Earth, or people who have more money than anything else. Have you ever met someone with enough money that they go, that's it, I don't need any more. That's sufficient. You haven't. The richest people on planet Earth are the ones who are the greediest, typically speaking, and are the most they have the most insatiable appetite for more money. Why? Because they've told themselves this story. If one day I get enough money, then I'll have value. Then I'll be worth something. Then my life will have meaning. Friend, listen to me. You have 
told yourself a story of why you have value. You have a story. That's the only way our lives are livable. The human heart can't help it. You've told yourself a story about why you are important. You've told yourself a story about why you matter. You've told yourself a story because guess what? In the grand scheme of things, if atheism is true and there's no God, your life is meaningless. You're nothing. You're a grown-up germ. It was goo to you via the zoo. You are nothing but a blip in a cosmic space, nothing. You are a grown-up germ. You are just a fizzing particle of matter that one, at one point was blazing through the universe that caught some idea called uh, conscience and sentience, and you don't matter. If there is no God, then your life truly means nothing. You're here today, you're gone tomorrow, and ultimately, all the universe is going to collapse in one big thermodynamic heat death, and there will be no more Mona Lisa, there'll be no difference between Hitler and Mother Teresa, everything will come out in the wash as perfectly even, and everything you think about justice and love and meaning and value and what people should deserve and get, and why rapists should be punished, and why nice people should be rewarded, none of it matters if there's no God. This is what you must recognize. Babylon doesn't want to tell you this. Babylon wants to, at the same time, tell you, you can make up your own rules, and you can make up your own identity, and you're going to be satisfied. And we looked at the statistics yesterday of what's happening. If you try to derive your value from inside your own soul, if you try to give yourself meaning, you will collapse under the weight of your insufficiency. That's the truth. If you think that you get to identify why you have value and meaning, I promise you it's gonna fail you. Because to satisfy that identity, and you think, I'm worth something because I've got money, you will spend every waking minute of your life chasing that. If you think you've got value because of your relationships, you will spend every waking minute. This is why we find girls who are boy crazy, boys who are girl crazy. You know someone, I don't want you to say anything, I want you to walk with me, okay? You have to grow up in this moment. Uh, you, you know people in your youth group who go from guy to guy to guy to guy to guy. Why? They've told themselves a narrative that one day I'll find a guy who will satisfy the deep longing that I have. I've got a newsflash for you. It's never gonna happen. Some of you have told yourself a narrative. If, well, the reason that that girlfriend didn't satisfy or the reason that that girlfriend didn't make me feel complete because I was the wrong girl. You're wrong. You will never find someone who completes you unless it's Jesus Christ himself. That's what Babylon doesn't want you to know. And here's what happens. This is the narrative for today. If you have your Bibles open to Daniel chapter one, I want you to do a little thought experiment with me as we start, okay? To understand the way that this is playing out. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, historians believe they're probably anywhere from the ages of 15 to 19 years old. So when we talk about Daniel, like Daniel in the lion's den, he always is like a 75-year-old with a beard, right? I'm Daniel. Where are the lions? That's not the case, okay? Shout out Meshach and Abednego. They're not old, okay? They're slightly older than you, possibly. Now, here's the thought experiment I want to go on with you. Imagine today there was a siren that kind of went off across all the United States, and it was a nuclear siren, and it said that we are now under, nu we are under nuclear attack from Russia. And Russia partnered together with all these different nations, including a lot of different Middle Eastern nations, and they're all coming at us all at once. And they decided 
They have now laser-focused all of their nukes on every human being in America. And we've got an option. We can either say, go ahead and push it, we're not giving up, or we can all throw our hands up and say, fine, you win. And so here at Hume Lake, the different nations are able to take us captive depending on where we find ourselves on the map. Hume Lake happens to be under Iranian control. So we all, Iran comes in and they say, all right, American kids, you're with me. If you're under the age of 18 and you're in pretty good health, then you're coming with me. This is exactly what happened to the Israelites, okay? Babylon surrounds Israel and says, y'all aren't coming out alive. What do you want? We want your kids. We want your best and brightest, strongest, smartest kids. So Tehran, they take us back to Tehran. They, they, Iran comes in, they're in control of us. They take us back. Now you're on some kind of embargo. You're taken across the ocean. You're blindfolded. We're all sitting there. Then we're all split up into all these different little tribal groups. And now you are now imprisoned in Tehran, Iran. And as such, you wake up in the morning after a really terrible ship ride, after everything else that happened, and you find yourself in the middle of a country where everyone hates you. And your only option is one of two. You either can maintain your identity, whatever part of the family, whatever family you're from, you don't see your parents anymore, they're gone, they may or not be, not be alive, you don't know. Because if they weren't deemed worthy of being, becoming a slave, they just killed them. All of the people who they didn't think were competent enough to become Babylonians, they just killed them. Or they left them behind so that the surrounding groups could come in and pillage whatever they wanted to do. Now you're in Iran, and you remember, you remember the words that your parents said. You might remember the words, I'm not sure how your family structure works out, but your guardian tells you, I want you to maintain your identity. Remember whose you are. Remember who you are. Remember what our family stands for. Remember what it means to be a member of our family. Remember that you are deeply loved. I want you to maintain your view of self. If it was my kid, we're a Hilkin family. I would look at my son, Peyton. I've got five kids, Peyton, Harper, Brady, Leo, and Finley. And I would look at Brady or Peyton and I would go, Peyton, you're a Hilkin, okay? Hilkins follow Jesus. Hilkins don't worry. Hilkins put other people's needs before their own. You're about to go to a country that believes the opposite of all those things. I want you to maintain your Hilkinness. And he goes off on a ship, and I never see him again. And now he's off behind enemy lines, and he's got to make a decision. And as he gets to Iran, he finds out that they're not being mean to him there. They're asking him for one thing. If you'll just forsake your hilkenness, we will make you rich. If you'll forsake the idea that your dad is Chris Hilkin and that he wants you to follow Jesus and he cares about loving other people, that's all trash. It's going to get you nowhere here. This is Iran. So we'd like you to become Iranian. And you might be thinking, well, you and what army? Look, we're not going to threaten you, man. Peyton, we're not going to threaten you. We're not going to hit you. We're not going to punch you. We're not going to crucify you. We want you to become Iranian, and we're not going to threaten you. We're going to bribe you. We are going to show you every day the beauty of Iran. We're going to give you the delicacies of Iran. We're going to teach you the ways of Iran. We're going to give you an Iranian name, and it's going to be a lot more interesting than Peyton, okay? 
We want, look, we love you, man. And all you have to do is forget this whole idea that you're the child of Chris Hilkin, and you can, all these treasures can be yours. And it's simple. Your whole mantra, we follow Jesus, we take care of others, we don't worry, whatever makes you a Hilkin, all you have to do is get rid of it, and all these things are yours. I want you to think about yourself. What would you be likely to do? I'm not, I don't want you to answer out loud, but I want you to start thinking about this. Because someone about three years older than you, in thousands of years ago, in Babylon, had to go through the exact same process. This might be a foreign concept for you, but this is what guys named Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to actually do. Taken from their homeland, brought behind enemy lines, here's Babylon, and here's what they offer him. Daniel chapter 1, beginning at verse 8, says this. It starts like this. So if you're in the, if you have a Bible, Daniel, big number one, and you're gonna look for a small number eight, and it says this. But Daniel resolved. If you have a, treat your Bible like a life textbook, which I like to do, so I like to make notes in my Bible, I want you to circle the word resolved right there in your Bible, okay? This is the, this is the focus of this whole verse. Daniel does something. He resolves. Okay, now listen. The Bible indicates here that if you want to stand firm in Babylon, if you want to maintain your identity, if you want to remember who you are and whose you are, and you don't want to give in to Babylonian rule, you must, help me out, what's the R word? Resolve. The word resolve, think about it. When do you make a New Year's resolution? Who makes a New Year's resolution in February? Someone who doesn't have a calendar. When do we make New Year's resolutions? Typically on my birthday, December 31st. It's the last day of the year. December 31st is the most popular day to make a resolution. Resolutions are made before or after the new year? Before. You all sit around and right, Aunt Martha goes, I'm gonna eat less sugar this year, right? And then Uncle Bill is like, I'm not gonna gamble, right? Like everyone makes a resolution for 2024. And maybe you'll do that, on December 31st of 2023, you'll make a resolution. A resolution is this. It's a decision you make ahead of time to stay true to something that will be difficult to stick true to. That's why no New Year's resolutions that are meaningful are like, I'm gonna eat more junk food this year, right? You don't need to resolve that. Just do it more often. Resolutions, by their very nature, mean that sometimes I'm going to want to cheat. Sometimes I'm going to want to go against it. Sometimes I'm going to want to do the very thing that I said I wouldn't do, but I have resolved that I wouldn't. So it says this, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So, here's what happens. Daniel gets to Babylon, just like you showing up in Iran, and you don't really understand the language, but you do understand this. As you get to the table, they say, the only thing they know in English is, we're going to turn you Iranian now. You remember what your dad said. But then, as soon as they say that, 
they push forward your favorite food. But it's an Iranian delicacy. And they push forward, now this is obviously taboo in our culture, but in their culture, they push forward fine wine. Why? What are they doing? They're saying, what, <laughs> when you start to drink, a part of the first part of your brain that stops working correctly is called your frontal cortex right here, your frontal lobe. Guess what the frontal lobe is in charge of doing? Making decisions. So what do you do? If I want you to get rid of your old way of being Hilkin or being whatever your last name is or following Jesus, and I want you to instead give in to what you've resolved not to do, I need you to start making some bad decisions or at least what you think are bad decisions. So what do they do? They give them a little bit of wine and they give them a lot of delicious food. Just get them off their game. Just dull their senses enough. Just dull their conscience enough so they don't know what they're doing. Daniel gets this ploy. He gets the game. So ahead of time, but while he's still in the boat, heading over to Iran, like you would be, while he's still heading to Babylon, he goes, I know what they're going to do. They're going to feed me, and they're going to give me wine. And I know how tempting it's going to be to fall to Babylon, because Babylon looks really good when you're hungry like I am, and when you're thirsty like I am, and when you're lonely like I am, and when you don't fit in like I don't, and when you don't feel like you belong, it's going to be so easy to go, fine, I'm a Babylonian. In the skit, this is Judith. Judith eats like the powdered donut. She eats whatever they put in front of her, because it's easier. That's why Daniel has to resolve not to eat the king's food or drink the king's wine. So Daniel goes, no thanks. Well, guess what? The royal official says, dude, (laughs) you got to eat it. Because if you don't eat it, you're going to look emaciated and all like skin and bones. And then the king's going to look at me and go, why aren't you feeding these people we're trying to make into Iranians? Why aren't you feeding these future Babylonians? My scheme is to feed them and drink them into a state of stupor so that they become what they would have resolved not to become. So, dude, if you don't eat this food and drink this wine, the king is going to kill me. He's going to cut off my head. I need you to eat this. Daniel goes, okay, I got a proposition. I'm not not eating it, okay? And I'm not drinking your wine. But I believe that I'm going to eat a different diet, and we don't need to tell the king. I'm going to eat basically a vegetarian diet, and I'm going to drink the drink that I want to drink, and I'm going to eat the food that I want to eat. And at the end of the same period of time where I have to go before the king, I'll give you a, I'll make you a deal. If I don't look better than all the other guys that are just gorging themselves, if I don't look healthier, if I don't look better off, then you can do to me whatever you want to do. But I'm telling you what, man, these dudes who are coming here, right? It's the freshman 15. You get to college. Your mom's not around. You're like, I'm going to eat everything. Anyone here in college knows what I'm talking about. Nom, nom, nom. All of a sudden, you have a cafeteria. And when you go to cafeteria and you're 18 years old and you're finally away from mom and they serve you pizza at every meal, which most colleges do, every freshman all of a sudden comes back home for winter break a little bigger. Why? Because they did not resolve not to eat the fine foods of the cafeteria. So, Daniel says, here's the deal. I'll eat what I want to eat. You feed that trash, just like in the skit, you feed that trash to those people, and we'll see who looks better. And if I look worse, kill me. But I'm telling you what, I'm going to spare you, but I also am not going to eat what you want me to eat. I'm not going to drink what you want me to drink. Here's what it says. Verse 11. Daniel said to the guard, 
whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearances with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So we agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego looked healthier and better nourished than any of the men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine and gave them vegetables and said, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. What does that mean? God uses this phrase again and again in scripture. To those who have been faithful with little, God entrusts with much. So God is scanning all of Babylon, all of his people from Israel, and he's watching what they're doing. And 99% of them are eating the royal food and drinking the royal drink and dancing the royal dance. And yet he finds these four guys and they're abstaining. They've resolved not to. So what does God do? God goes, yes. You will help me take down an empire. All I need is a few people in Babylon who don't think Babylonian thoughts and give in to Babylonian rule and want to be Babylonian people. All I need is a few in a culture as dark as Babylon and they're gonna be my vessels to change this whole country. So he gave them wisdom and understanding to these four men and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king, to bring them into the service, the chief official presented, presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them. He found no one equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So he entered, they entered the king's service. In every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found they were 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there in the first year of Cyrus. So he changes their names. You're no longer Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We are going to call you, uh, sorry, you're no longer Azariah, Mishael. We're going to give you Babylonian names. Their names used to mean Yahweh is great, Yahweh is good, Yahweh is king. Their names now mean Nebu is God and Baal is king and Asherah is everything. So they gave him pagan names. And, and these four guys say, you can call us whatever you want to call us. I can't stop you from doing that. But I can resolve not to eat the royal food and drink the royal drink. Here's what this means for us today. One of the key aspects of Babylon is this. Babylon wants you to become Babylonian. Our culture doesn't want you to follow Jesus. Our culture, the Bible says, our whole, our, it says, the Bible says that the, the Satan is the prince of the air. He's the prince of this world. Maybe you didn't understand that, but I'm telling you it right now. If I asked you right now, who is the prince of earth you might go, Jesus, you'd be wrong. In this fallen state, Satan runs this place. Now, God is the king of Satan. And all that Satan can do is just what God permits him to do. But make no mistake, you live in Babylon. You live behind enemy lines. You've been taken to a foreign country. And the foreign country that you live in, be it America, but also in the, the schools you go to, the jobs that you're going to work in, they have an idea, and that is to take you away from the kingdom of God and put you to work in the force of Babylon. They want you to think Babylonian. They want you to act Babylonian. They want to name you Babylonian things. Our culture wants to do this to you right now. And most of you in this room, I got to tell you, you're already there. Most of us in this room are not looking to a future where we become Babylonian. 
Most of us are already Babylonians. You're, you're 10, 11, 12 years into the process. You might go, well, that's not, that's not true. I go to church once a week. If you go to church once a week for an hour, that means you spend 167 hours in Babylon a week and one hour in the kingdom of God a week. Do you really think you're going to look more like God than you do like Babylon? You think that that's a good game plan? To avoid Babylonian captivity and Babylonian thoughts, you're going to spend one week in the kingdom and 167 in Babylon? I love that Hume Lake chooses this theme because it needs to make us aware we're not looking towards a future day where we become Babylonian. We already are. Most of us, listen to this, this is very important. The Bible makes this very clear. Most of us in this room, most of the people listening to the words I'm saying right now will reject Jesus in their life because they love Babylon so much they're unwilling to give up what it has to offer. The Bible says the, narrow, the, the, the gateway to heaven is narrow and few people choose it, but the gateway that leads to destruction is wide and many are those who follow it. And it's not talking about people in some other country, it's talking about us. Don't think it's a them thing, it's an us thing. Most of you listening to my voice right now will at some point in your life come to a fork in the road when it comes to whether or not you're gonna believe in the kingdom of God or you're gonna follow the ways of Babylon. Some of you already have. And when that day comes, you might right now be thinking, not me, I go to a Christian school, I attend a Christian church, my parents are Christian, I don't have to worry about this. The Bible does not mince words. It says, do not be deceived. The majority of everyone right now listening to my voice will at one point choose Babylon over Jesus. Most of you in your life will choose the kingdom of Babylon over the kingdom of God. That's the truth of the Bible. That's what the Bible says. Which means if you want to finish this race in Christ, if you want to follow the kingdom of God, you can't think to yourself, I'm immune to Babylonian schemes. I'm immune to Babylonian food. I'm immune to Babylonian drink. I love that Hume Lake is kind of inserting this wake-up call to us as a culture, saying, friend, you're already Babylonian. You need to find someone to rescue you to the kingdom of God. It's not that this road's coming up for you. It's that you've already chosen it, and now you need a rescue from captivity. I'm going to end with these three things that I want you guys to be talking about in your cabin. I'd like you to write these down as we're processing this. These, this is the strategy of Babylon. I want you to write these three things down, and then I want you to actually use bravery and courage to examine your life. I want you to use you guys are brilliant. I've watched you out in the lawn. I've talked to so many of you already. You're brilliant. You are the most informed generation of all time. You are not people who, like, <laughs> I had to teach my grandma how to click on something on a computer, right? I was like, Grandma, use the mouse. She's like, where's the mouse? I'm like, Grandma, not that kind of mouse, right? That, she, she had no, you guys were born with a phone in your hand, Right? You have access to everything you could ever want access to. You are drowning in information. And listen to me. You're drowning in information, but you're starving for truth. 
You have mistaken the idea that because you've got all information at your fingertips, it means that you're also wise and prudent and knowledgeable about the real things in life that matter. And it's another deception of Babylon. You're drowning in information, but you're starving for truth. You are the most truth-starved generation ever because you have not had to learn the hard work of differentiating Babylonian lies from kingdom of God truth. Why? Because you don't get kingdom of God truth. You only get Babylonian lies. You don't even know that you're Babylonian. That's why this is so important to you. That's why it should be important to us. Again, some of you don't care about, about following Jesus. Some of you don't care if you go to heaven or hell. It does, it's of no import to you. So everything I say, you're just gonna go, wah, 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 who cares? But I know there's people sitting in here right now where something's clicking for you. The Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart going, he's talking to you. You don't know truth, friend. You, won't, you don't know right from wrong. You don't know morality. You don't know who God is. You have this vague picture of Jesus. And right now, let, let me ask you a question. I want you to answer it in your heart. Because 80% of you in here based on statistics, would answer this question incorrectly when it comes to scripture. Eight out of 10 of you, that means four out of five of you, that means if you lump yourself together with the four people that are around you that are most near to you, only one's getting this answer right in your generation. Here's my question. Are you going to heaven, and if so, why? Don't, don't say it out loud. Are you... That's an important question, right? C.S. Lewis puts it really succinctly. He says, listen, friend, you don't have a soul. Listen to this. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Which means what makes you you is not your fingers and toes and heart. That's not what you are. Do you know that every 13 years, every single cell in your body has replenished? So there's not a single bit of you, if you're 13 years old, your body is a completely new body from the day that you were born. Not a single cell anywhere inside your person or outside of it is the same as it was 13 years ago. You had a whole new cycle of you. Nothing about you is the same as it once was, but you still have your same memories. You still have your same thoughts. You, you still have the same internal identity that you had. You still know your name. You're not just physical body. You are a soul. And that soul, when your body gives out, all those atoms and all those molecules that have constantly been changing over in your body, one day that's all gonna die. And the soul, what makes you you, the party that craves justice and love and acceptance and belonging. There is no part of your DNA that we look at and go, oh look, their justice gene. Oh look, that's their love molecule. No, no, no. That's all indefinable. That's just because God is our God. That's why we think of those things. Now, here's the question. If you are not your body, then what do you think happens when your body dies? Well, you leave that behind, but your soul continues to live on. So I ask you this question again. When your body, your physical flesh and bones, one day gives out, and you don't know when it's gonna be. Some of you, it'll be before you finish high school. For some of you, it'll be when you're 85. In a room of this size, if you just do the statistics, you're not all gonna make it through high school. You don't know who that is. You don't know. You're gambling on borrowed time, but you think you're infinite, don't you? You think you're untouchable. You're not. So you gotta ask these questions. 
if you died tonight, what would happen to your soul? What would happen to who you actually are? And let me ask a follow-up question. If you say, I would go to heaven, why? Almost 80% of you would begin with the phrase, because I try, blank. Because I try to be a good person. Because I try to put other people's needs above my own. Because I think that loving, a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. Because I heard someone say, when, because I, because I, because I, because I, the Bible says your answer's wrong if you start with the words, because I, followed by anything that you've ever done. That's the heaviness I want you to understand right now because Babylon wants you to think. It wants to rock your sleeping soul's cradle and go, don't worry, you're good enough to get in. Don't worry, when you die, as long as you try to be a good person, you're gonna be just great. Don't worry, when you get to heaven and meet God face to face, you just tell him you tried your best and that's gonna be enough. The Bible says you're dead wrong. So, the deception of Babylon wants you to think that if you just try to be a good person, it's all gonna come out on the wash. God is just a loving God and all he's gonna do is say, at least you tried and that's gonna be good enough for me. The Bible completely disagrees with that sentiment, completely. So here's what Babylon has done. Here's what I want you to write down and walk away with. By the way, if you're asking then, well, what's the, what's the real answer to the question of why would I get, we'll get through that. That's what this whole week is about. Hopefully you're not going anywhere. That's why I love Hume Lake. You can't leave. <laughs> you're stuck. Okay, now, Here's what Babylon does. The reason I want you to write this down is not because we're doing some history lesson on Babylon. It's because this is the strategy to take you away from Jesus today. The strategy of Babylon is a strategy of America. The strategy of Babylon is a strategy of modern day secularism. That means anti-God belief. The strategy of the Babylonians is the strategy of the Americans. It's the strategy of secular culture. It's a strategy of Satan. It's to do these three things. Here's what they are. Babylonian as they are here. Number one is this. It will indoctrinate you. It indoctrinates you. Doctrine is a fancy word that is about your deepest beliefs. Babylon takes these Israelites and tries to mess with their deepest beliefs. When my son gets taken away by Iran and over to Tehran, they don't mess with his opinions on Taylor Swift and lights and colors and things. They're not going to worry about that. They're not going to go, do you like pancakes? Well, now you're going to like Iranian waffles instead. They don't care. They're not even interested in what, what your favorite food is or what your favorite band is. They want to go at your deepest, most fundamental beliefs about why we're here, who you are, what's right and wrong, and where you go when you die. These are the four biggest questions of life, if you don't know them. Where did we come from? You can write these down if you want to. Where did we, these are the four most important questions of life. Where did we come from? Why am I here? What is right and what is wrong? And lastly, where am I going when I die? Where did I come from? That's number one. Number two is why am I here? Number three, what is right and wrong or what is good and evil? And number four, where do I go when I die? This is what Babylon's coming after. 
Where am I from? Where did I come from? The Bible says you are uniquely created. You are a child of the living God. He knit you together in his mother's womb, in your mother's womb. The culture says you're a cosmic accident, a bit of space dust. Your ancestors were chimpanzees. You don't mean anything. You came from nothing. You're moving towards nothing. Merry Christmas. Second question, why am I here? The Bible says you are here to glorify and to know God. It's the incommensurable good of life. John 17 Jesus says, these people live that they might know God and the one who he has sent. Why does the culture think you're here? So that you can get rich or die trying. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. And then once you're satisfied, you close your eyes in death. And that's all your life means. The third thing, what's right and wrong? Your culture, Babylon says, whatever you think is right and wrong is what is right and wrong. God says, whatever is right is what is like God, and whatever is wrong is what is not like God. In Christianity, our morals are secure. They're absolute. Right will always be right, and wrong will always be wrong. Why? Because God's character never changes. But in Babylon, right and wrong are shifty and moving, and they can change from generation to generation. Doesn't make a difference. Lastly, where am I going? When I die, Babylon says, everyone's going to end up with dirt above and dirt below. Don't worry about anything else. Have fun. Say la vie. Seize the day. Carpe diem. Do what you got to do. Try to help someone else along the way because, hey, why not? And then you can die. And then you're nothing. Space dust. The Bible says your soul lives on and it faces judgment. You will meet the God who created you face to face. And you will either be found as a child of God or as an enemy of God. You will either be found as Babylonian or as a part of the kingdom of God. Those are the only options. The first thing that Babylon wants to do is indoctrinate you. It wants to change your core beliefs. That's number one. Here's number two. It wants to feed you. Babylon's second scheme to turn you Babylonian is it's going to teach you how great the things of Babylon are. And here's what Babylonian things are for you. You're gonna make the sports team. You're gonna win the beauty pageant. You're gonna have more friends than you used to. You are going to have the best relationship. Your family is gonna get a big inheritance. You'll get money, sex, power, wealth. Your life, is, you're gonna go, wow, this is not bad at all. You know, I <laughs> hate to admit it, but I kinda like these Babylonian treats. I hate to admit it, but this is kind of nice. I know that if I did the right thing, I might lose some popularity, but shoot, popularity feels good. I know that people like me because I'm a bully, and I know that it's not part of God's kingdom, but shoot, I like that people like me. It's gonna feed you. It's gonna drop little trinkets in your lap time and time again. It's a tranquilizer so you don't ask and want out. Lastly, it's gonna change your identity. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they, their names are changed from Azariah. See, everything, Daniel's name becomes Belteshazzar, right? His name goes from uh, God is this provider, God is blessed, and then his name is changed to, right, uh, Baal protects the throne. The last thing that culture is going to do is it's going to re-identify who you are, why you have worth, why you have value, why you have meaning. It's going to change your name. So in your cabin time, here's what I want you to do. 
I want you to run through those four questions. The first one is this, and I want you to be honest about this. If you met God face to face tonight and he said, should I let you into heaven, what would your response be and why? And then I want you to really sift through, have I begun this indoctrination process? Do I, have I started to believe these deepest realities? Am I indoctrinated by Babylon? Third question, have, has there something that Babylon has fed me that I eat so much that I don't even want to be part of the kingdom of God because Babylon tastes so good and following Babylonian things feels so good and I don't know why I would follow Jesus when Babylon has all this to offer. Lastly, is your whole identity wrapped up in culture? Has culture gone so far that's actually changed who you are? These are the hard questions that I'm gonna act, treat you like adults, talk to you like adults, and actually respond like adults. And we're gonna continue to talk about what this means for the rest of the week, but tonight I wanna leave you with those four questions. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for the gift of your scriptures. These scriptures that point out the deceptions that we find ourselves in. These scriptures that, that point us to hard truth, things that we don't want to believe about ourselves, we don't wanna believe about our culture around us, but that you make very clear they're everywhere, all the time. That there is a war going on, and the most dangerous position to be in any war is in the middle of a battlefield, unarmed and unaware that you're in the middle of a battlefield. So God, would your Holy Spirit wake up this generation to see the battle around them, that they would recognize the schemes of Babylon so that we wouldn't fall victim to them? Would you give us the bravery, the courage to answer these with truth, and honesty instead of some dumb Christianese answer just so that we can say what we think our leaders want to hear, would we instead be honest? Because you're not afraid of our doubts, you're not afraid of our truth, you're not afraid of our honesty. Would we take advantage of that time tonight? So let me pray. Amen.